Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is May the 4th, so may the Lord be with you. If you don't know uh, that may the Lord be with you is actually the phrase at the heart of may the force be with you, then I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast of the first hour, the opening few minutes. I explain all of that. Uh, This is also Teacher Appreciation Week. And so I want to talk about um, here just briefly, in addition to just saying another shout out today to all of the teachers in our lives and the teachers in the lives of our kids. Man, we miss you more than more than we ever thought we could. Um, so uh, a big shout out today to Miss Julia, who we miss here at our house in particular. Um, as we consider Teacher Appreciation Week, I just want to ask you this question in terms of discipleship, in terms of who we are, in terms of the ongoing learners that we are, the lifelong learners that we are, um, who do you trust to teach you rightly, correctly, righteously? How do you how do you choose among the teachers whom you might follow, at whose feet you might sit, whose books you might read? Um, because trusting the right or the righteous person to tell us the truth is is essential. And so there's discernment required when we think about who we call teacher today. You know, the disciples called Jesus teacher or rabbi. Like who, at whose feet are you sitting today to teach you well, to teach you the scriptures, um, to teach you what's at the very heart of God for the way that we live these days? And why would you trust someone to tell you the truth about one thing if you can tell by the simple observation of their life that they are suppressing the truth of God um, in other areas of their life? Like, why would you do that? Like, why would you trust someone to be your teacher to tell you the truth in in any area of life if when you look at their life, it's so obvious that they're suppressing the truth in other areas of life? I, I mean, that's just really the question I'm going to put before us today. I, I have this uh, gnawing at me from over the weekend in relationship to a particular uh television news anchor, like, right? Like, why do people trust that individual to tell them the truth about anything when, by simple observation of this individual's life, it is completely obvious that they are suppressing the the very simple identity truth about God in terms of their own reality in, in relationships. So there you go. When you think about who you trust to tell you the truth, you need to examine their life. And you need to look at their life and you need to say, is this a person of integrity? Is this a person who has integrated the word of God into their life in such a way that they are, you know, obviously with the with the help of the Holy Spirit, because none of us does it by ourselves. But is this person walking by faith day in and day out, moment by moment, submitting themselves, yielding themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring them into greater conformity with the will of God? And if they're not, 
Why would I be following them? Why would I listen to them to tell me the truth about anything? If it is so obvious that they are not submitting to the truth of, of God in other areas of life. All right, I know. <clears throat> I got a little wound up about that. Next up, a faithful teacher of the Word of God, Kara Murphy. She is here with us today to talk about her new book, The Inquisitive Christ. Jesus asked a lot of really good questions, and they are really good questions that we should consider today. So we're going to take up The Inquisitive Christ. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Murphy. You can find her on Twitter at Kara L.T. Murphy. You can also find her on Facebook. Same handle, Kara L.T. Murphy, although there you refer to her as author. So Kara L.T. Murphy, author. Kara, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you. We should really start off with maybe the most critical family information that my producer has made me aware of, and that is that um, you have a, a new dog, and it's an additional dog, and that it's important for us to hear this dog's name. Oh, that's too funny. Yes, we have a full house right now, Carmen, um, and, and the new puppy's name is St. Patrick Van Morrison Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> St. Patrick Van Morrison Murphy. We once, uh, growing up, had a uh, uh, Ludwig von Smittenhofer, the fourth Fowler. <laughs> so there you go. There uh, we you go. would have German dogs, and you would apparently have uh, have Irish dogs. You got it. You got there it. There you go. Well, with a name like Murphy. Okay. So <laughs> um, so let's talk about the Inquisitive Christ. Uh, it's um. I think that conversational apologetics is all about asking better questions and asking questions that provoke people to consider uh, God's view of things and God's view of them and God's view of the situation that they are in. Your book is really an invitation to get into those conversations through the questions that Jesus asked of people then and then apply them to the here and now. So talk with us about the premise of the inquisitive Christ. Yes, thanks, Carmen. Well, I'll, I'll start a little bit with the journey of how the questions kind of came into my world in a new way. Um, like like anything with God, it's definitely that continual process of, of revelation, of journeying with Him, and, and really God breaking through um, kind of old ways of thinking. So I, I definitely speak more to why questions and, and why they came to me in my life in the introduction of the book. But but the beginnings of the inquisitive Christ came to me at a time in my life where I was personally wrestling with a lot of uncertainty. I mean, literally, uh, and this is a funny story, my family and I were wandering pilgrims in Irish sheep country at the time. It's, it's, a, it's a good story, Carmen. But, but what I was discovering um, at the time is that I was really frustrated with the status quo of what I had known to that point of God. Um, my spirituality was really a, a hurried one, um, really distracted, a, a little bit disengaged. But at the same time, I was convinced that there was a lot more out there. There was more of God. There was more of his kingdom reality, more depth and intimacy with him that I, I was missing. And I, I would have described my soul at the time as parched, 
not really knowing where to find the water. So, you know, a little bit of backstory here. Most of my life, I would probably characterize myself as a, a person who really loves to have answers, definitely feel comfortable having answers. Answers create that sense of self-sufficiency and comfort and, and eliminating uncertainty. Because, um, I mean, really, who, who among us likes to feel vulnerable? It's hard. Uh, but again, at this time, I didn't have the answers for where to find water for my parched soul, and I knew it. And it was from here, it was from this place that my family and I became really ripe for God's invitation to come away with him. I, literally and figuratively, figuratively, excuse me, he, he invited us away on sabbatical to Ireland um, in order to more fully enter into his questions. And, and really, Carmen, his questions were that unexpected and holy rescue of our souls. Hmm. Um, tell, when, give us a little sense of time frame. Um, when are we talking about? So this, uh, I'm about five years ago, hmm. um, a, a little bit before then, but uh, around five years ago is when we were taking the physical journey. But again, you know, like everything in life with God, it starts way before we even know it's starting, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, okay, so one of the things I appreciate, you know, Kara, is that um, even just in, in telling us that, okay, it's five years ago, but really, you know, it starts before that, and it's ongoing. Um, part of what I appreciate is that th this isn't fast. It's not hurried. It's in the acknowledgement that there is this, you know, this soil being tilled, this sense of a parched place, the des the desire to know God more, the willingness to follow where he leads, um, the the sacrifice that's required to take time away um, to, I mean, all of those things are important lessons as a part of this conversation. Um, we have to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, I want to turn our attention, you know, directly to the questions in the book, because I do think that the questions provoke us not only to re-examine the scriptures, but to re-examine ourselves in the light of the scriptures. And so I am talking with Kara Murphy. You can find her on Facebook, Kara L.T. Murphy Author. Uh, we're talking about her book, The Inquisitive Christ. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Kara Murphy. We are talking about the inquisitive Christ, 12 engaging questions. Um, Kara, let's get into the questions themselves. Um, mm -hmm. It really, there's a, they, they move from where is your faith all the way, uh, all the way down the list. And then my listeners know that I am a huge fan of appendices. So I loved the appendix, um, which lists the hundred questions Jesus asked. Mm-hmm. So pick a question and take us on a journey into it. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I can tell you my favorite one right now, Carmen, is um, chapter 10. Uh, how many loaves do you have? Hmm. Honestly, the question is hitting me so hard right now as we are dealing with um, COVID-19 and all of the unusual, strange new way of life that that is, and and actually having a book release the the week the world shuts <laughs> down, the bookstores are closed, um, and just I hear I sense Jesus asking me all the time, 
how many loaves do you have? Because see, he, he wants me to continue to give him the loaves that I have, which is this book. And he's going to be the one that miraculously supplies and distributes. And, and that is, that is part of how we can take his questions. Looking at it within the context is a beautiful thing. And we do that throughout the book, but also looking at them in my context, you know, each question is evidence of this deep gospel truth that there is great intentionality behind every question Jesus asks. And the intention is always relational. It's always relational. Each question is an invitation to more. And he asks because he craves that dialogue. So as I hear him asking me that question, you know, it's it's not a, a question that is just kind of to be left into silence. It is the beginning of a conversation with him. And and it just, you know, the, the way he asks and the why that he asks speaks so much into his deep desire for intimacy and relationship. I mean, he is God with us and he wants that with us life all of the time. You know, you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, whose whose feet are you sitting um, for teaching? And, and Jesus, he is the great rabbi. He could have lectured, but he chose to question. And that's the kind of teacher I want to sit at their feet, Carmen. Oh, I love that. He could have lectured, um, certainly. He certainly could have lectured, um, uh, but he didn't. He he asked questions. Um, and, and part of that is, right, this, this rabbinic methodology of, of, of asking questions. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering what you learned in the process of doing the research for the book and writing the book. What did you learn about the kinds of questions that, that Jesus asks us um, through the scripture, right? Because there's, there's two, there's at least two layers going on here, right? Jesus asked these questions of real people in real time in a particular context, but these Absolutely. are questions that continue to probe us today. Talk a little bit about how that works. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I, when I stumbled upon this discovery that he was a question asker, it, it really, it kind of blew my my life with God out of the water. You know, you, I put 100 questions in the appendix, but really, Carmen, he asked over 350 questions. Um, and he even throws one into Acts chapter 9 for Paul's benefit. It's kind of funny. Um, but what what I noticed right away in the context, a lot of times, Carmen, his questions sounded preposterous to me. Um, and I mean that with all due respect. But for example, you know, he asks his disciples in a boat that is literally capsizing, why are you afraid? Mm. You, there's a context for that question that the disciples were facing in real time. But but that question is just as relevant for me, for all of us, especially now as we all are facing a lot of anxiety and fear about this new normal we are living and walking through. You know, another example, and this shows a playful side of his questions, his first post-resurrection appearance to his friends who are in hiding is, do you have anything to eat? Again, if we, if we explore that question, which I do in the book, we see he's playful, but there is something below the surface of that question that we need to get to the heart to. And, and, and it is, it's a playful treasure hunt with Jesus and his questions. 
So uh, one of the things that occurs to me is Jesus never asked a question because he actually needed an answer, right? And so when you when you talk about why Jesus would ask a question, um, there is this playfulness. There There is also this um, provocation to get me to think um, about something. I mean, he, he, he doesn't need the information. It's a little bit like God asking Adam and Eve, uh, where are you right, in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> like, God clearly knows where they are, and he clearly knows why they're hiding. Um, but it's important for them to acknowledge where they are and why they're hiding. And so I think the same holds true for us. Exactly. So, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Kara, um, one of the things that I uh, w- in in the book, I mean, I appreciate the way the questions that you chose to highlight throughout the chapters move us in the direction of really then ultimately asking ourselves um, the the question, you know, like at the end, like, do you want to be well? Like there really is this this question about whether or not I want to be not only forgiven of my sins, but I really want to be brought into greater conformity with who Christ is. Do I really want that? God is willing to make that true, to bring that about by the power of his Holy Spirit, but do I want it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, each each of the questions and therefore each of the chapters really could stand alone, Carmen, but, but when they're read together— in, in an intentional kind of way, it is a process. It's that process to go deeper with Jesus. And, you know, he understands that we begin our relationship with him with mistrust, but that's what questions do. You know, they, they kind of, in a kind and gentle way, sidestep that barrier that we have up with Jesus. And so he uses these questions in service to his desire to reach and rescue the human heart. You know, if somebody comes to you and points their finger in your face and starts telling you all of the ways you need to change, we're going to shut down, right? Our defenses go up. But Jesus comes and offers his question, which is such a kinder, gentler way and very wise. I mean, he's the most brilliant mind in the universe, and it's a wise way for him to pursue our hearts that are oftentimes running, running from him. (laughs) Um. Absolutely. All right, Kara, you and I have to leave it right there. The book is The Inquisitive Christ. Uh, It really 12 significant questions, but then there's the list of the hundred questions in the appendix, which are, you know, then just the sampling of the 350 or more questions that Jesus asks, not only uh, while he is here, but after his resurrection, he asks, as Kara alludes to, uh, a very provocative question um, of of Paul. All right, Jesus is still asking us questions today uh, and, and really, I think, training us to ask better questions of one another. So when you are seeking to apprehend the mind of Christ in the matters of the day, um, let's, let's cultivate our ability to ask better questions in our conversations with others that actually invite them into a conversation instead of driving them away from it. Kara Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. The book is The Inquisitive Christ. We'll be right back. About life in general, 
you know, let's just be sure we are in the word of God before we leap out into the world that he so loves. That's just my encouragement um, today. Next up, Dr. David Aikman is back. He and I are going to talk a little bit about China. We're going to talk about a little bit about King, Kim Jong-un, uh, rumored to be dead, not dead, undead. Uh, that's up next uh, here on Mornings with Carmen. Twenty years of marriage, three kids, and he's gone. Traded in for a younger model. This is Max Locato. She told me her story, and we prayed. And then I said, it won't be painless or quick, but God will use this mess for good. With God's help, you'll get through this. Remember Joseph? Genesis 37.4 says his brothers hated him. Far from home, they cast him into a pit, leaving him for dead. A murderous cover-up from the get-go. Pits have no easy exit. Joseph's story got worse before it got better. Yet, in his explanation, we find his inspiration. You meant evil against me, he said, but God meant it for good. The very acts intended to destroy God's servant turned out to strengthen him. The same will be said about you. You will get through this. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Always nice to be on the program. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. All right, China seems to be just up to no good, exploiting the situation in every way possible. Um, uh, give us your, uh, your, your take on what's, uh, what's going on. Well, I think the Chinese leadership um, is in a bit of a quandary because they realize that most uh, nations in the world regard them as having deceived the whole world about the nature of this virus and uh, kept silent about the fact for a long time that it was transmitted from person to person. And subsequently used the global need for supplies to corner the market by either not exporting equipment to different countries, particularly the PPE, or just generally being silent about what they had. So I think it's a potential existential crisis for the communist regime. And it's interesting uh, common that today is May the 4th. May the 4th is a very significant day in modern Chinese history because in 1919, the May the 4th event started, which led to the rise of modern politics and communism, basically, uh, and changed the whole nature of the Chinese political system. So it's an important day to keep in mind. See, this is this is one of the reasons, David, that we have to talk to you, because um, everyone listening thought May the 4th was important because of Star Wars. <laughs> well, I, I'm afraid that that reveals me as a complete incompetent about modern entertainment, because I didn't realize that May the 4th was significant in Star Wars at all. <laughs> so obviously I had to be big up. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, no, it's it's uh, it's good. Today is um, uh, among the the Star Wars crowd. Um, you know, it's May the Force be with you. So May the Fourth be with you is their day. Like this is their day, man. <laughs> it's, they're very excited about it. Um, so let me for those uh, who are not maybe paying attention to all of the headlines related to China. Um, China's religious persecution in the time of the coronavirus has really ramped up. Um, their investment in Africa is being now exploited. They are calling in loans, um, seeking uh, seeking to bring nations there, really, to heal to them. Um, as, as David has alluded to, there's just a, a rising tide of, of evidence that, um, that China knew that there was a pandemic, um, or at least it wasn't a pandemic, but they knew that there was an uncontrollable um, virus, uh, and they knew it ahead of time, um, and they were hoarding supplies related to it prior to letting the rest of the world know. Um, and then they're up to no good in the South China Sea as well. So just all kinds of things to be watching in terms of what the Chinese are doing and how I think at this point they make the choice whether whether or not to play well with others around the globe or pursue their China first interests uh, in terms of their thousand year plan really the the millennial plan of the Chinese, which is obviously right. different than the, the millennial reign of Christ. Yes, obviously. Well, the Chinese have what some people are calling a 100-year marathon plan. This was first formulated by the China scholar Michael Pillsbury. And he said that the Chinese had made a plan to dominate the whole world and replace the United States as the chief architect of global international relations by 2049, which would be the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Revolution. So I think they're on schedule to try and do that. They've, they've had a, a, a proposal to dominate key manufacturing areas by the 2020 decade, and in some areas, they're definitely on schedule to do that. But with China, you never know whether there are forces within the country, intellectuals, academics, professors, and so forth, who are seriously suspicious of China's very fast-moving and expansionist foreign policy. So. There's always the possibility that there could be internal fissures within the regime that could bring it down. I'm talking with Dr. David Aikman. Uh, we're talking about the intersection of of worldviews. Um, let's pivot from China to its neighbor, North Korea. Um, there were rumors that Kim Jong-un was either dead or gravely ill um, now seems to be very much undead. Uh, just give us your, your perspective on what's going on there related to the mystery of, uh, of the leader of this hermit regime. Yeah, well, I think one of the facts that comes out from the Kim Jong-un uh, controversy, whether he was dead or alive, is the fact that a hermetically sealed regime, rather like North Korea, which has made dangerous threats to other countries in the world before, is in serious 
likelihood to confuse the world about what is really going on and what its intentions are, precisely because it's so internally sealed up and there are no reliable sources of information. So I think this is a very worrying thing because regimes like that can sometimes go in very unpredictable directions very suddenly. Hey, David, let's take a a brief break. And when we come back, I would love uh, your perspective on this headline um, out of Great Britain that the British public is turning to prayer as as something like one in four Brits are tuning into religious services, which is just an incredible uptick in uh, in terms of the people who normally go to church in England. So we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dr. David Aikman. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. Uh, David, I'm reading this headline in The Guardian. The British public turn to prayer as one in four turn into religious services. A quarter of adults in the UK have watched or listened to a religious service since the coronavirus lockdown began. One in 20 have started praying during uh, the crisis based on a new survey. That is a um, that's a a really dramatic increase in terms of participation in religious life. Absolutely. It's quite remarkable, Carmen, because the figures for the UK have traditionally been very low in Europe, only 5% of the population regularly going to faith services, whether Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, for several decades. All of a sudden, we have this Splurge, splurge of interest in faith as a factor in national life, which I think is the most encouraging thing to come out of England for a very long time from the UK as a whole. Very good sign. Yeah, and of the people surveyed, um, the the young adults are you know are the group most likely to have listened to or watched an online broadcast. A third of young adults. Uh, ages 18 to 34. And that's actually the group that is least likely to have ever been inside of a church. That's right. I mean, well, you have to bear in mind that historically, young people have played important roles in Christian revivals in England. I mean, if you go back to the 17th century, the time of the Puritans, uh, which was a great surge of Protestant enthusiasm. You had young people playing a very important role. And then, of course, during the Wesleyan revival, which got going in England in a major way in the 1750s, you had also an upsurge of young people playing a role. So it could be that we're seeing the beginnings of a renewal of healthy interest in faith from British youth. I certainly hope so. I hope so, too. And we will be we'll be praying in that direction that God would fan the flame of uh, of this flickering faith, which obviously exists in the hearts and minds of uh, a growing number of uh, of Brits. It's it's very exciting. All right. One more um, headline related to uh, uh, related to the British Empire. And that would be that Boris Johnson has announced the birth of a son. Yes, he's got 
things completely the wrong way round. He uh, <laughs> indeed. He, yeah, he he has a live-in girlfriend, and then she gets pregnant, and then he nearly dies in hospital, and finally they have a baby boy, and uh, at some point, I suppose he's actually going to tie the knot and get married, but. A lot of people have been praying that his near-death crisis in a few weeks ago in hospital might have renewed an interest, if he ever had one, in faith as an ingredient, an important ingredient, not only of his own life, but of national life. So we'll have to, have to wait and see whether that's the case. Now, see, David, you have again uh, brought me uh, brought me to the right place in terms of how I ought to be praying about this. Um, certainly, the birth of a child and a near death experience, um, God is able to use in really extraordinary ways, and so uh, that is the specific way that I will be praying that God would choose to use these events in the life of Boris Johnson, not only for his own. Uh, edification, but for uh, for the faith of a nation and potentially, you know, world leadership as well. And so uh, thank you, as always, for bringing us back around to the uh, to the right place in the conversation. Well, thank you, Carmen. It's always good to discuss positive developments in faith around the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Aikman. We'll uh, we'll talk with you next Monday as well. Okay. thanks. Look forward to it. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, we got a couple of minutes here. So I'm going to, I want to talk about four headlines that tell the story of six babies, three boys, three girls. Uh, one of those babies is the one we just discussed, and that is the son of Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons. Um, and there are certainly headlines celebrating the birth of uh, of Boris Johnson's uh, most recent child. There's also headlines related to um, a son born to Anderson Cooper. Now, Johnson is the prime minister of England, not married to the mother of his latest child. He's also the father to an unknown number of other children. Anderson Cooper is an anchor for CNN. Uh, He is a partnered gay man, and he relied on surrogacy, as um, babies still do require a mother. But that reality, that babies still require a mother, brings us to uh, the story of a third baby boy. His biological mother—now, Paul, you're going to have to concentrate here on this sentence— His biological mother continues the court battle, this again is in the UK, to have the child's birth certificate changed to align with the delusion that she is in fact not a woman and therefore not his mother, but a man and therefore his father. Um, this, This individual is raising this child to believe that she is his father, not his mother. Now, to this point uh, in time, the court has resisted conceding the point. The problem is the UK, a UK court actually allowed this woman to legally identify as a man prior to the birth of the baby and therefore now finds itself in a conflict created by culture's desire to accommodate gender dysphoric people by suppressing the truth of their biological reality. And so um, we are where we are because we have convinced ourselves that it is better to accommodate people who are genuinely 
I mean, deeply confused about reality instead of telling them the truth, instead of speaking the truth, as hard as that may be. So now the headline related to the three little girls, three baby girls. They're actually not here yet. Um, so uh, here's the headline. <clears throat> the headline itself is is dizzying. One of Britain's first gay fathers is now expecting surrogate triplets in October with his daughter's ex-boyfriend. Now, first of all, two men are not expecting a baby, and they're certainly not expecting triplets. And so um, just even on the face of it, the headline is, is speaking an untruth. And if the math for you is hard to figure, I want you to consider for a moment the reality that these three little girls are being born into um, a quote-unquote family uh, populated by an unnamed mother, who again is a surrogate, three men, one of whom is the former boyfriend of the daughter of one of the fathers. One of the fathers? Yeah, see there again, two men can't have a baby. All of them reside together in the same house, a palatial estate, by, by, by the way, in uh, in South Florida. Um. So do you remember when we were told, this goes back to the Obergefell decision in 2015 here in the United States of America, do you remember when we were told that it doesn't matter who a person loves, that it doesn't matter because it has no impact on anyone else? And so why should we as a culture or a country limit the definition of marriage in any way? Well, friends, this is the why. This is the why, because we are now talking about three baby boys and three baby girls. And the failure of each and all of these individuals involved in all of these babies' lives to acknowledge God's design is resulting in a generation of children who are going to be raised by them, which will make generational the suppression of the truth. If you need a reminder of that, read Romans chapter 1. And if you need a reminder of how God has designed things to be good, in fact, very good, um, read Genesis 1 and 2. Human beings are created in God's image as distinctly male and female, human beings. God gives the man and the woman to one another in a covenantal union that we call marriage, and marriage is defined by God, not by us. Marriage is given by God for a number of reasons, but all of them go way beyond the fleeting feeling of erotic love. So consider today why God gives marriage and what marriage points to, which is actually an eternal reality of Christ and the church. And then let's also remember that the choices we make now aren't just choices related to us. They redound to generations beyond us, maybe to the third and fourth generation, maybe to the thousandth generation. For a lesson in that, reread Exodus chapter 34. So there you go. There's some uh, reading assignments uh, today. Romans 1, Genesis 1 and 2, Exodus 34. Let's be people who are in the word of God today before we get out there into the world that God so loves, because we certainly need to be agents of grace in the midst of it. Praying with and for you today. We'll be right back here tomorrow to start our Spring Share fundraiser. Be praying in advance how you're going to participate. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.